Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. It's a new year with its own challenges, both new ones and old ones. For people tackling climate change, it's a chance to breathe new life into their projects, plans, and commitments. And you've heard some of them on our show. Now, to kick off 2022, we're checking in with them again because they've got news. It's news of renewal, resilience, and realizing long-sought-after goals. The people we're hearing from rely on different tools, community, the courts, and collectively, the nations of the world. From down on the ground where climate-linked disaster has struck all the way to the highest levels of the United Nations, we have updates to share. So many of them, this episode is actually part two. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. A couple of hours' drive northeast of Vancouver is where you'll find the community of Kanaka Bar. It's near the town of Lytton, which burned to the ground last summer. In March of last year, before all of that, I chatted with Chief Patrick Michelle of the Kanaka Bar Indian Band. His community is adapting to climate change, using renewable energy, storing power in batteries, and creating buildings and infrastructure made to withstand extreme weather. Well, one of the things that uh, we here at Kanaka Bar, we take as a given is that climate change is real. So resiliency is our goal, is to ensure that if there is an extreme weather event, that the the response, the, the anxiety and stresses of response is minimized. He told us how these changes are empowering people in Kanaka Bar. We reverse the adverse effects of colonization through the renewable energy sector. We're going to be okay for the next hundred years. I just don't know how to quantify that. And then not long after we talked, extreme heat, floods and fires ripped through BC's Fraser Canyon. One of those fires destroyed Chief Michelle's home near Lytton. We invited Chief Michelle back to hear how he and his community are doing and what Kanakabar has planned for 2022. Chief Michelle, hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me back on. I just want to ask you, first of all, how are you doing? Um, I have to say fine, uh, but stress levels are really high and it's just little things that come in. Am I going to be able to get groceries today every time the power, power flickers? So anxiety levels are high for myself and my family, but it, it's also in the entire community. And how was your community affected by the November landslides and floods? Well, we're still in recovery mode, if you can call it that, from the, the June 30th fire. And then uh, we were just basically getting the village of Lytton's water system back up. And the, all of a sudden, the, the water hit and uh, filled the, 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 the intakes. So we haven't got the water back on in Lytton yet. But at Kanaka Bar, um, we, we were ready for the, the rains. So our community stood at uh, the culverts and kept the ditches flowing. And by the time the November 15th rains ended, we drained all the pooled water and made sure that all the culverts and ditches uh, uh, kept flowing. So we minimized the impacts on the community that way. Now, everything you just talked about, it all came after record summer heat and the June 30th wildfire that destroyed your home, which was on Lytton First Nation land. Have you started rebuilding? 
No, um, on September 20th, uh, the Minister of Environment released uh, a site assessment indicating massive amounts of contaminants in the soils and potentially in the water systems. So on a precautionary principle, you can't just be rushing back. So we're, we're waiting for the go-ahead to, to begin the cleanup. I'd like to start removing the, the metals and all those type of things, but I, I'll wait. Well, where have you been living then? Well, I've, I started out in a hotel room in Abbotsford and we're able to secure an RV and then we moved to Boston Bar, but uh, RV camps closed uh, on October 1st. So I moved to an old mill site now uh, that was uh, went bankrupt in uh, 2007. So I've been living here and Elephant has created some RV sites up uh, near their school. So we'll be moving up there. Uh, oh, Luton First they, Nation has made it, made these sites. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, that's... so they've made some RV sites and they've they've engaged some contractors to begin building temporary homes. Village of Lytton is also advancing along. It's taken some time, but our big challenge for rebuilding the town and the reserves that were directly impacted is this contamination that exists. Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it, just so people understand the geography, uh, Lytton First Nation, Kanaka Bar are cheek by jowl, aren't they? That's correct, yes. So Lytton First Nations is right in Lytton itself. It has 54 reserves that's uh, extending north towards Lowit and uh, Spencer's Bridge. Kanaka Bar is located 14, or 18 kilometers south of Lytton on Highway 1. Okay, so your, your band, Kanaka Bar, was spared the fire and it's been working to provide affordable housing again for people who've been displaced. Tell me how the communities come together through this effort. Well, we, the communities were always close. I mean, in the, in the town of Lytton, there was a, a large hall called the Memorial Hall where we always gathered as community. And that meant, you know, the, the village of Lytton residents, the Lytton First Nations, uh, and the, the residents of their regional district. That's one of the buildings that was lost. So it's going to be a really hard to replace much of the buildings in a timely fashion. But we certainly get together. Uh, I'll give you an example. On October 15th, uh, we gathered at the CNR site and uh, there's about 140 of the evacuees gathered and we, we gathered, we shared, we cried, but more importantly, we healed. And it was quite amazing on that Sunday that uh, the, the railroads, both CNR and CPR, um, they voluntarily stopped uh, one of their trains and were able to give gifts to the engineers and as an acknowledgement that uh, the workers did not cause the fire. The fire was a byproduct of climate change, the extreme heat, the drought and the wind that existed. On, on that fateful day. That must have been a powerful moment. The last word spoken was, uh, was the actions of a few that is destroying the world for the many, but it is the act of a few that will save the world for the many. That was the final word spoken, and that, that made me cry. That actually sounds like the, almost the motto for, for Kanaka Bar and what you've been doing. Um, this, this development of 24 new affordable rental homes, it, it's been in the works since 2018, but it's, it's taken on a new significance, hasn't it, since, since these disasters in 2021? Yeah, we broke ground on October 21st. And uh, so with the support of BC Housing, uh, we were able to secure uh, uh, almost 90% of the cost of this new affordable housing unit that will be powered by the sun, the wind and small hydro with battery storage. So if the grid goes down, these homes and the community building will stay lit. The lights stay on, the heat stays on in the winter, the AC stays on in the summer, the communications are maintained. So with solar and battery storage, we're creating this resiliency that within the community that can be, well, if people follow it, can be replicated and scaled up anywhere BC and Canada. So that's what we're trying to do is saying, look, if you make the investment, you'll be okay. 
Are the units, though, being designed with, with heat, with fire, with, with these other climate impacts in mind? Absolutely. The band has engaged our, our polytechnical institutions to do a desk exercise review of all the resilient materials that are available in the world, which could be heat resistance or wind resistance or cold resistance and water resistance. And then we're going to be building a project, uh, uh, a test project here in the Lytton region. Kanaka Bar will host it, but we're hoping to bring it closer to Lytton so that uh, British Columbians and Canadians will be able to see, look, if you're building new, you can build with uh, materials that uh, basically can minimize the impacts of extreme weather events. Now, your community was installing its own renewable energy and weather stations, as well as reducing fire risk well before the disasters of 2021. I'm, I'm wondering if you were surprised at how the year unfolded. Well, it's called unprecedented. It wasn't unexpected. The warning signs were all there. In 2017, uh, Chief Chapman and George Abbott, who was uh, an MLA at a time, commissioned a report called The New Normal. So we know that heat and fire were at extreme risk. We've had multiple reports from federal and provincial governments, the IEPCC warning of the risks. So what came as a surprise was my town, my hometown, uh, became the focal point of the, the world at COP26. Because even though we were aware of it, we weren't ready for it. Kanakabar came through relatively well. Um, have you, did you find, though, any weaknesses in the infrastructure there? Yeah, the one thing we had learned, and we rectified it right away, was that when the fire occurred, we were connected to what's called the communications hub, so we lost our internet and our phone. So what we did was we worked with TELUS, and we put in a, a temporary cell tower, and we're hoping to put in a permanent cell tower, so that uh, should the communications fail in the region, we'll still be able to communicate. And then uh, what happens is when power failure goes out, the internet we have is Wi-Fi based, so we'll be working together with the, the Wi-Fi uh, internet service providers to ensure that if uh, the grid goes down, communications are still maintained. And communications is so critical in order for us to be together. I'm wondering then, what are going to be your priorities with climate change in mind that you'll be working on in 2022? So in 2022, um, one of the things that Kanakabar is going to advance again is the permanent must-stop rest stop which is a Highway 1 facility where all passers-by can secure air, water, food, shelter, energy, communications, and while the transportation grid is down, have a safe place to stay. I'm wondering what lessons you're holding on to now from 2021. The one lesson I have is that as long as we're in this together, and we are, we'll be okay. And so that's really the thing here is that this isn't impacting one community. It isn't impacting one person. It's affecting all of us. Chief Michelle, you are always thinking about the future, uh, well, even while you're trying to deal with the present, and I appreciate your time today. Well, I appreciate it too, uh, Laura. I really uh, thank you very much for sharing. I hope everybody follows Kanaka Bar and Litton's story. Thank you, Chief Michelle. You're welcome. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
Now, you can certainly hear in Patrick Michelle's voice the pride he takes in what he and his community of Kanakabar are doing. And in fact, he's become somewhat of a global figure. He's been appearing on international media since the fire that burned down Lytton, talking about what happened there, what Kanakabar is doing, and how he sees the future, not only for where he lives, but for the world. And stories of loss are sadly becoming familiar. Not only here in Canada, people around the world are fleeing their homes due to fire, floods, rising sea levels that are destroying lives and livelihoods. David Boyd is the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment. He's also an Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia. And last year, he told us how the Canadian government is failing to meet its obligations to the rest of the world. Canada has along with all of the other wealthy nations, done absolutely nothing to address loss and damage, to address these devastating impacts that are already hitting low-income countries and small island developing states. There's a huge gap between where we are and where we need to be. And, you know, I have this privilege of having been to Fiji, having been to Kenya, having been to northern Norway, meeting with people whose lives are really being dramatically disrupted by climate change. And When you meet those people and you see the circumstances in which they're living, you cannot help but have your heart go out to them and understand at a deep human level the need to take this problem with far greater sense of urgency than Canada has done to date. Boyd was already taking action when we spoke to him last May. He was pushing the UN Council on Human Rights, wanting it to recognize all people's right to a healthy environment. It's part of a years-long campaign, and he's got some news about that. David Boyd, hello. Hello, Laura. Great to be with you today. I I want to, first of all, uh, start with a photo that you tweeted out of yourself recently. Um, I'm wondering if you could describe it for listeners who might not have seen it and what it means. Sure. Well, this was a photograph taken at the United Nations Human Rights Council in this really beautiful room, and it was a moment that had been in the making for literally decades uh, a ground a groundswell of support for recognition of everyone's right to live in a healthy environment. And so that that resolution was adopted and I was uh, just absolutely over the moon because it's something I've been working on for a long time. And so uh, the photograph is just me pumping my fist in the air in the in the normally very staid and conservative uh, human rights council. Very big smile on your face, too. Now, as you say, you, you, you were working to have that resolution passed by the UN Human Rights Council um, for, for such a long time, in addition to others. Tell me what impact it will have now that it has been adopted. Yeah, so I really believe this is a historic moment in the evolution of human rights. You know, nobody was worried about the environment back in 1948 when we adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but everyone's worried about the environment now. And you know, as we as we know from centuries of social movements, human rights really have the potential to be catalysts for change. We can look back to the abolition of slavery or the suffragettes movement, or more recently, the, the powerful use of rights by indigenous peoples. And so this human right to a healthy environment, which is now held by every single person on earth, I believe has similar catalytic potential. And boy, it couldn't come at a more important time. I have to note, though, four nations abstained in the vote, China, Japan, India, and Russia. What does that say about the global embrace of this resolution? It means we have more work to do. But I'll tell you one thing that happens with these resolutions is that sometimes countries abstain, but once the overwhelming majority of the United Nations gets behind it, 
then those countries usually come on board. And let me give you a classic Canadian example. In 2010, the United Nations, for the first time, recognized the right to water. Canada abstained. But several years later, in the light of that overwhelming global consensus, Canada switched tracks, came on board, endorsed the right to water. And look what we've done in the last seven years with respect to Indigenous people. We've ended long-term boil water advisories in more than 120 communities, which is, of course, well overdue, and it's not yet a job done, but it does show that these kind of what people think as very abstract UN resolutions can actually have a knock-on effect that results in changes in people's lives. Well, what's Canada's reaction been to, to this resolution being adopted then? Well, Canada is not a member of the Human Rights Council, so we didn't have a vote, but there's a high likelihood this will be coming to the General Assembly and I really hope that this time Canada decides to be on the right side of history. (laughs) Now, you'd also said that you'd hoped it would have an impact on the COP26 Global Summit in Glasgow, yet there wasn't much movement on at least two solutions you spoke about with me earlier, adaptation and loss and damage payments for nations bearing the brunt of climate change now. Do you think that this, this adoption of this resolution could help move those two issues forward? I hope that it does. And, I, you know, you're right. It was disappointing to see the lack of progress at COP26. I mean, right now I'm speaking to you from St. Vincent and the Grenadines, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life, this tiny island nation in the Caribbean. And they are just being ravaged by climate change. I mean, they're getting hit by hurricanes. They're getting hit by these intense rainfall events. They're getting hit by droughts. They've got coral bleaching, rising sea levels. I mean, it's just a, it's an almost apocalyptic situation. And this is a tiny country that really hasn't caused the problem at all. So, you know, there's there's such an ethical and moral obligation on countries like Canada to step up to the plate. You know, if rich countries can find $20 trillion to address the pandemic, we've got to find $20 trillion to address the climate crisis as well. Let me just say for listeners that you actually are there on uh, on as part of your UN mission. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's be clear. This is not a beach vacation. I haven't even set foot in the ocean yet after 10 <laughs> days down here. It's Yes, it's, a, it's what we call a country mission to explore the way that environmental challenges are affecting human rights. Now, I just want to press you a little bit more on the resolution because it's, it's legally non-binding. So, so what good is it really? Well, what, they, what these resolutions do is they serve as a catalyst for changes. And so, again, if I can go back to the 2010 resolution on the right to water, again, not legally binding. There's only been a couple of cases in the world where it's been referred to by courts. But holy mackerel, has it had a, made a difference in, in terms of what governments are doing? So the first thing is a whole bunch of governments changed their constitutions, their highest and strongest laws to include the right to water. And those countries include Costa Rica, Fiji, Mexico, Slovenia, Tunisia, so countries across the globe. And other countries like France and Colombia have put that right into legislation. And most importantly, countries have really stepped up and taken greater action on the ground to deliver on this right. So Slovenia, for example, the major community there that didn't have access to clean drinking water is uh, the, was the Roma communities living in on the outskirts of Slovenian cities. They have now got safe drinking water. Mexico, whom I mentioned earlier, Mexico has extended safe drinking water over the past decade to more than 1,000 rural communities that previously didn't have that. And then we have the example of Indigenous communities in Canada that I mentioned earlier. So what I hope will happen in terms of this resolution on the right to a healthy environment, it will be a catalyst for those types of changes. I mean, we live in a world where 7 million people every year die prematurely because of air pollution. So now countries are on on the record saying we recognize 
Our citizens have a right to breathe clean air. That means they have to bring in air quality standards. They have to have plans to meet those standards and they have to take actions to meet those standards. So I really think this UN resolution is going to save literally millions of lives going forward. As you say, though, there are words and then there are actions. And I just want to note that the federal government had included the right to a healthy environment in its legislative overhaul of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act in 2021. But the legislation died on the order paper in the fall because of the election. What's your reaction to that? My reaction to that is we need to put it back into we need to we need to have the government reintroduce a bill to strengthen the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And that needs to be uh, one of their top priorities in in the next legislative session. And, and that really needs to include strong provision related to recognizing that every Canadian has the right to live in a healthy environment. It wasn't even in the throne speech, though. Nope, but I believe it's going to be in the ministerial mandate letter, so stay tuned. I have a feeling you know more than me. <laughs> <laughs> just, just finally, uh, David Boyd, you actually live right here in B.C. Given what's happened here during the course of 2021 and, and in just the last several weeks with flooding and landslides, I'm wondering what you think the right to a healthy environment means to Canadians now. My God, if, if this isn't the writing on the wall that we need to really stop treating climate change as just another issue and treat it like an emergency. That's what this is. This is an emergency. And when we have other emergencies like a fire, we respond with all the resources needed to deal with that. And so that's what we need to do with climate change. And that's one of the things that I hope the right to a healthy environment can do is act as a spur that citizens can use to say to governments, look, I've got the human right to a healthy environment. That takes this out of the realm of policy options and because it's a human right makes it into a obligation on governments. David Boyd, thank you so much. I, I wish you uh, a happy and safe 2022. Thanks very much, Laura. The same to you. Now that conversation with David Boyd actually took place a few weeks ago and you heard him hint there may be more news to come from the federal government. He was right. In mid-December, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau released new ministerial mandate letters. In the letter to the new Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Guilbeault, Trudeau instructs him to include the right to a healthy environment in federal law. The law can be a useful tool in the fight against climate change. Another guest on this show is making use of it as well in a different way. Amelia Pennycrocker is 16 years old in grade 11 at Citadel High School in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She's a climate justice activist, and the last time we spoke, she was using the power of the pen, or should I say the cursor, in this digital age. She sent a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau every week from December 2019 to December 2020. It all began when Penny Crocker had a heart-to-heart -heart with a friend. I have a lot of younger friends, and one of my friends, she's 10 now, but um, at the time she was 9, and she's one of the most brilliant, amazing people I know, and I think she has the potential to go so far. And I was talking about climate change in her presence, and... I don't know what we said that really sparked or she, something that she didn't know already because she knows a lot about climate change, but we said something that she didn't know that really made her upset and really made her worried about her own future. 
and she just she looked at me and she said what about my hopes and dreams and that just made me so sad and so angry like what about you know her hopes and dreams what about my hopes and dreams what about you know every kid on this planet's hopes and dreams our future looks so bleak but it doesn't have to like there's so much we could be doing and yet we don't and it really makes me angry and really makes me sad especially looking at my, this my nine-year-old friend and all the other young people that I know who are so incredible and deserve so much better from our government. That was the subject of my first letter. Her first letter. You heard that. She ended up writing 53 letters, one every week, and they were all pleas urging the government to take swift action on climate change. When we first spoke with her, Penny Crocker hadn't received a reply from Trudeau. She did eventually hear from his staff, but it was disheartening. I felt very unheard as a young person who couldn't vote. I feel like because I didn't have any real power over him, he was able to discard my messages. Since then, she's put down her pen or put aside her mouse, and she's found new ways to fight for a healthy climate. Since I stopped writing, I've been trying to really contribute to my local climate change activism group, School Strike for Climate Halifax. Really great group of people, and we've organized two protests, one in September, one in October, since school started. And I'm really glad that I, you know, was able to put my whole heart and my all my time into helping organize those protests. And I've also, I've been doing, I, uh, I've been working with Children's First Canada, and I recently got involved in the voting age challenge. That challenge is actually a new court case. She and 12 other young Canadians want the government to let younger people cast a ballot, allowing people under the age of 18 to support the leaders they want and hold them accountable. For me, you know, I think the reason that people should be in support of the voting age, people should want the voting age to be lowered, is because it's better for democracy. I think if young people could vote, we would have a much more future-focused political environment. Things would change and they would change for the better, I think. I think if young people could have voted in the last election, there would have been a lot more conversation about climate change, you know. And I think the fact that young people couldn't vote was a big barrier to it being a huge election issue. Because, you know, adults are obviously aware of climate change and many adults are very concerned about climate change. But I think it is young people who feel that fear and concern and urgency most directly. Penny Crocker also thinks a lower voting age would force adults to take more decisive climate action. I think adults are starting to see through, you know, the Fridays for Future protests and many other youth-led movements that young people have a voice, they have a voice they want to be listened to, and that we're, we're not going to just go away and let you jeopardize our futures and our presence in many cases, and that we're going to fight for what we want to see in the world and also just, you know, what we need to see in the world that we're not blind to the things that are happening and we want change. And I think adults are seeing that and they're seeing that, you know, it's actually helpful for everyone if young people have more of a voice. Now, you heard Amelia Penny Crocker there mention the words conversation and the importance of conversation. And that's what this show is all about. So just let me remind you, if you are working on solutions to any aspect of climate change, go ahead, let us know about it. And if not, well, we really like to hear what you think. Email us, earth at cbc.ca, or tweet at CBC What on Earth, or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. That is it for us this week. 
Thanks, as always, to the What on Earth team, associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, engineer Matthias Wolfson. This week, Molly Siegel is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.